We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. This talk was recorded at the lunchtime campus Bible study where it was delivered for university students. Having been sick with uh, colds and flus for the last two weeks, I've been lying on my bed reading whodunits. I mean, you've got to do something. Daytime television is un- unbearable and it makes you feel sicker. And the uh, reading anything much more serious than whodunits doesn't help you any. And so, whodunits I've been working on. And work through a whole string of them. There's two kinds of categories I notice that you get. The one where you really don't know very much about the crime and the criminal and you've got to try and unravel what it's all about. I read a very nice one the other day by Marjorie Gallingham and I didn't even know whether the crime had been committed until we reached the very last page or so. And then we found it had had and so then we had to work out in just a half paragraph who it was that had done it. And So there's that kind of... Uh, but there's the other type that they turn into television for American viewers where you see who commits the crime right from the beginning and the interest is not you unravelling who did it but rather you watching the hero or heroine unravelling who did it and of course especially having the suspense of seeing the hero or heroine going into the trap and almost getting themselves knocked off in the process because they don't realise their best friend is really a monster and, uh, and the person they're looking for. So there's the two different kinds. Now Matthew's Gospel is a little bit like the second kind. We, we live post the resurrection. We know the end of the story before we've started reading the story. But he is recounting for us what happened to the people who were living before the resurrection and who didn't know how the things were going to turn out. And so we can watch from a safety, from a safe distance, and see the disciples trying to discover the things that we already know because we live after the resurrection and they don't. We're we're watching history unravelling before our eyes and we're watching them as they struggle to understand, as they struggle with their, their minds and their prejudices and their little categories slowly being blown apart by this man Jesus who doesn't fit into their categories, into their mindsets, into their expectations. And as they're struggling to understand it, we can sit in great superiority of hindsight and say, well, aren't they stupid and silly? But, but what we need to note is how clever Matthew is in recording it for us. He actually presents to us a realistic picture of what it would be like before the resurrection, trying to come to terms with facts that are going to change the very character of the world and the universe and the lives of these people. It's so clever, it's almost as if he's recording what actually happened. If you set out to try and write it like this, you'll find it very difficult. Unless, of course, you are one of those people. For he portrays for us the disciples as being very slow-witted. It makes us like them all the more, but they are slow-witted. He portrays for us the enemies of Jesus coming to Jesus to test him by asking for signs. At the beginning of the chapter, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they want a sign in order to test Jesus. Notice by testing him, they're not actually wanting to see him pass, they want to see him fail. I don't know whether you get get this impression about the examinations. 
that some examiners are there to test how much you know, some so as to get you through because they want to keep their quota up next year, but every now and then you get a feeling that some really are on their way to try and make sure that you fail and will set the uh, exam appropriately. These Pharisees and Sadducees, they're interested in testing Jesus, not so as to see him succeed, but so as to be able to catch him out, so as to be able to find the fault with him. That's the character of what they're doing, and they're testing you, say, well, show us a miraculous sign. Come on, do one foolproof miracle that will prove it beyond a shadow of doubt, beyond any question or query. And, of course, sign seekers like that can never be satisfied. Jesus says, Jesus refuses. He says, no, there's no miracles I'm going to give you except the sign of Jonah, which he's already mentioned back in chapter 12, verses 39 to 41. The sign of one who is given up for dead and yet rises up to preach repentance to the nations, to the Gentiles, and sees them repenting. There is the sign that I'm going to give you, the only one. And you'll have to have eyes to see it, of course. Alone with the disciples later, verses 5 through to uh, 12, Jesus warns the disciples about the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That is, about the teaching, verse 6, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees which in verse 12 is explained to us as not the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. As yeast spreads through the whole lump and affects all the part of it, so does this sign-seeking, testing mentality actually seep through the whole of the community and really does tremendous damage to people. See, it's very attractive, even to us today, it's very attractive, the idea of thinking, well, Yes, Jesus, just, just give me one foolproof piece of evidence, one clear demonstration, just show me a sign, do a, a quick miracle, do, then, then I'll know for certain. It, it actually has an appeal to us, that desire for absolute knowledge that we think the right sign could give us. But, of course, while it's an attractive idea, it's only attractive to sinners, which is why it's attractive to us. It's totally inappropriate and inconsistent with the character of God and his status and, and, and uh, significance and position in the universe, that he needs to go around and do party tricks to satisfy sceptics. That really is a, a, a less than godlike thing to be doing, to actually provide them with miracles like that. And Jesus is not going to be caught into such a trap as that. He won't do it. Not to say he can't do anything, and far more than they've ever expected he could do. But he's not going to do it at their bequest like that. That is, that, that is the mind of a sceptic and unbeliever who requests such a thing and he's not to receive it. However, in warning the disciples against that kind of sign-seeking proof and demonstration, the disciples are so slow they don't understand what he's saying. They haven't brought any bread with them and so they think it's because he's talking about the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees because he, he's picking faults with them for not bringing their bread. Now, it is a peculiarly slow thing slow is an understatement, dumb, because he's just fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves, he's just fed 4,000 other people with a few loaves, and now here they are, 12 of them, and he does, they don't think he can manage. They collected up 12 basketfuls after the 5,000, 7 basketfuls after the 4,000, and they're worried about they're not getting their tucker. I mean, if there's one person that you wouldn't have to worry about bringing lunch to talk to, it's Jesus. Of all the people of mankind, I mean, one of the distinctive characteristics, I don't think I've ever heard of anybody else doing this miracle. It is a uniquely Jesus thing to do, feeding multitudes. Now, a dozen doesn't qualify as a multitude, but I think he could manage them. 
and they should have been able to work that one out. And Jesus rams the point home in verses 8 through to 11. He says, I'm not talking about that. Notice verse 8, he calls them of little faith. And down in verse uh, 11 he says, how is it that you do not understand? Faith and understanding have a very interesting interrelationship that's seen in the sign seekers and seen in the disciples too. If you have faith, you will understand more. But faith is not something that is unreasonable. That is, faith leads to understanding. And when you say it like that, faith leads to understanding, people then say, okay, what you're saying is, chop off your head, blow your brains away, just jump in and believe, and when you believe, then you'll start to understand more and more. Uh, I'm not saying that. Faith needs to rest on what is reasonable. Understanding leads to faith, just as faith leads to more understanding. That's the problem. You see, what the disciples were doing at the moment was wholly unreasonable. Completely unreasonable. He'd just fed multitudes of people. Now to be worried about where they're going to get their bread is unreasonable, isn't it? He has demonstrated they were there, they handed it out, they collected it up after. If anybody should know, they should know that he could do it and that providing bread was the least of his worries. So it's totally unreasonable, their lack of faith. Faith would have been a reasonable response to Jesus given their situation. But unless you have faith, you will not understand. You will not go on understanding further. Why and how is it? Well, it's like history writing. It is very hard to write the history of somebody or the biography of somebody. It's very hard to write a biography or history of people with whom you're unsympathetic, somebody you don't like. Very hard to do it because you never really see the world the way they see and therefore you never really understand properly why they made the decisions they made and the choices they made. When you read it to find fault with them, well, you may find fault, but you will never really get understanding. And so the best biographies and best histories are always written by people who are themselves sympathetic with the subject they're writing about. You see it again, I I had a very interesting chat the other afternoon with a couple of Muslim friends. And they read the Bible to find fault with the Bible. I read the Quran so as to find fault with the Quran. Because they are reading it that way and I'm reading it that way, neither of us understand. They don't understand the Bible, they keep misunderstanding it because they're only looking for faults, they're only looking to rip this verse and put it against that one and show a contradiction and they don't really understand the context of either verse so they don't find the contradiction and they don't understand anything and I do exactly the same with the Quran, you see. I'm going around finding verses that I can show are wrong and false and, and because I don't have any sympathy for the Quran and its teaching because I'm not thinking the way it thinks then naturally it's very easy to misunderstand what it is thinking. But once you're inside it, once you're a believer in it, once you are seeking to find out what it is saying for its own sake because you want to live the way it's teaching, then you will understand it better. Now, of course, that's always a problem, isn't it, for the outsider who is trying to evaluate the truth. It's always the problem. But if you approach it like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you'll never understand. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The skeptic will never see. But when you have got the evidence to put faith in Jesus and you do not do it, your understanding will never grow. And here they are, the disciples. They have faith and they don't have understanding because they don't really have enough faith. 
And so even on the simplest things, they get it wrong. However, just for a change, in this chapter, they also get it right. Just for once. It's nice, really. Peter gets it wrong so often, it's really pleasant to get him right once because he's someone that we nearly all can find ourselves liking. He's one of those likeable characters in the whole Bible, Peter. You keep on seeing him make the mistakes that you've made and he, he, he lives with such kind of uh, extroverted, outgoing personality. He's a warm personality. He's the one who always speaks up and here he is doing it again, speaking up on behalf of everybody else and just for once, he gets it right. So let's spend some time looking at this. Verse 23, uh, sorry, in verse, uh, uh, where are we? Just on the top of the page. No, 13 following, 13 following it is. Jesus, with his disciples, poses the question about who he is. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Or who do people say I am? It's the same thing he's asking because he always calls himself Son of Man. And they give the first century answers that you would expect. Or some people say John the Baptist. Well, we know Herod thought that back in chapter uh, 16, verse 2. 14, verse 2, rather. Jack in 14, 2, Herod says that because Herod had John beheaded and, and uh, was spooked by his own guilty conscience and so thought Jesus was John the Baptist come back from the dead to spook him. Others say you're Elijah. Well, we know that because in, in uh, the end of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, the last chapter in our Old Testament, the Jewish Old Testament was organised differently, it is prophesied that before the coming of the Messiah, Elijah will arrive. And so people were naturally looking for the Elijah to come. It was a very common first century expectation and maybe Jesus is the Elijah. Or maybe you're just one of the prophets because you're doing the kinds of things the prophets do, teaching and preaching in the way the prophets do. So there's some good first century answers which I think are quite different to the 20th century answers. If you go out into the library lawn there and ask people, you know, who do you think Jesus was? I reckon you get all kinds of answers, but I doubt anybody will say he was John the Baptist. I'll tell you all kinds of things. He was a leader, a founder of a religion, a good man. He was a, a legendary character. He was a, a socialist. He was a... I mean, depends on your viewpoint of life. Uh, I mean, if you're a Christian who sells the socialist... Uh, they don't ever sell the socialist thing. They hold it up there. I've actually never seen anybody ever buy it. Somebody confessed to me the other day that they had bought one previously, but I've never actually seen someone buy the socialist weekly as it's sold there. But if, if, if one of those people is Christian, then they'll say, well, Jesus was a socialist. But what, who was Jesus in the first century, the 20th century? It's the question that we need to address our minds to because Jesus pushes it further. He changes it from who do men say, who do people say that I am, and starts to say, who do you say that I am? You. Who do you say? Now, it's a personal question. Uh, it, we leave aside the, uh, the arts degree kinds of questions, the idle speculations and the trivial nonsense, the dialogues that can go on forever, the questions that have no answers and just give you ample room to waffle. We come down to the real life questions about what you actually think. That's a different matter altogether. You see, if I say, what do you think about marriage? Well, you can, you can write reams on the subject, couldn't you? But if someone should say to you, what do you think about marrying me? <laughs> different kind of question, isn't it? At that point, suddenly, you've dropped out of trivia. You've dropped out of kind of a pleasant Saturday afternoon. You really... Well, Jesus is no longer saying, you know, who do people say that I am? Well, you can write reams on the subject. He's saying, who do you say that I am? Different ball game, isn't it? Peter gives the answer. But before we look at Peter, can I warn you that we're just actually changing the subject again a little bit now because now we're going to look at another first century answer, Peter's answer. 
But Jesus really poses the question for us as much as anybody. Who do we think Jesus is? That is the crucial question that Christianity faces. What do you make of Christ? Who do you think he was? That's the crucial question. And looking at Peter's answer, it's a good and useful exercise, but it's still not your answer. Well, back to Matthew. Peter says in verse 16, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We know from the Old Testament that these two terms are the same, really. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, which is the Hebrew word, both with an Australian accent. And the Messiah in Psalm 2, the most important of the Psalms about the Messiah, the Messiah is the Son of God. That is his, his role. And he is to be the king, the ruler. So there are these concepts in Israel, that very common concepts in Israel that they have, and Peter identifies Jesus as the Christ. That is who you are. Now, you and I have known that from way back in chapter 1, verse 16, at the genealogy, because the genealogy ends up by saying that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus knew it, at least from chapter 3, verse 17, his baptism, when the voice from heaven came and said, you are my, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So you and I, see, we know this already, Jesus knows it, but the disciples have been struggling to come to this conclusion. They've drawn close to it several times and they've fallen back away from it at other times. In chapter 15, uh, where is it, 14? I've got great troubles with my numbers today, I'm sorry. In chapter 14, uh, verse 33, they are saying, you are the son of God. But now, and from now on, they are openly confessing that he is the one and they don't go back from that. Jesus accepts Peter's reply as right. He congratulates him for getting it right at last. And just note, as we pass by, that some people worry about Jesus. They worry that Jesus doesn't go around saying, I am Christ, I am Christ, or I am God, I am God. In fact, my Muslim friends have a great problem about that. They cannot believe that, that uh, the Bible teaches that Jesus is God because they can't find Jesus walking around saying, by the way, folks, did you know I'm God? Now, it is, again, you see, a post-resurrection view of the New Testament. We have come to certain conclusions about who Jesus is and what he did. Conclusions, I believe, that have been drawn from Jesus' own teaching. But we expect it all to come out in a series of propositions and statements. This is the truth about Christianity. I'll write out a creed for you to tell you what it is. But that's not how Christianity came in the first place. It came with a man. And the disciples meeting this man. And this man moulding their minds, changing their minds, opening up their minds, developing their understanding. If he came in saying, I am the Christ, or I am God, what would be the reaction that he would receive? Well, I've got lots of friends who, well, not lots of friends, but many, several friends who have told me that they're God. They've all been in psychiatric care at the time. Every one of them. I've never met anybody outside who's told me they're God. If I did, I know where to put them. I mean, people who go around saying, I am God, do not get a reception that is anywhere close to belief, is it? And it wouldn't have been any more in the first century. In fact, it would have been less. Given the Jewish uh, views of blasphemy, he wouldn't have lived to say it a second time, let alone to have three or four years in psychiatric care. Now, he can't actually walk in and say that. And what would they understand if you said, I am Christ? But Jesus clearly does accept 
the title, verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because this wasn't revealed to you by man, but by Father in heaven. In other words, yes, you're right, you've got it at last. You didn't get it of your own account. God has told you. That's saying, I accept it. And in verse 20, you'll notice he says, don't tell anybody about the fact that I'm the Christ. So Jesus accepts the title, even though he doesn't go around pronouncing it himself. And in fact, he stops them going around and pronouncing it as well. It's a secret for a particular reason. Now let's try and understand why. Firstly, in the congratulations Jesus gives, he, he emphasises the revelation. Peter's confession has not come from a human discovery, but from a divine revelation. It's important that we understand this because so often Christians preach more than they pray. But understanding the gospel comes from a supernatural work of God in the minds and hearts of unbelievers, opening their minds, their eyes to see what is the truth. We often think that if we get that one foolproof argument, that, that reasoning, that syllogism, that, that fact, then we will be able to force the other person to become a Christian by the sheer weight of truth. But that underestimates the reason why people don't become Christians. They don't become Christians because of their sinfulness, that's why. And facts and reasons and arguments will not overcome sinfulness. What do you mean? I'm saying, Jesus is the king of the universe. That is the great fact that you're coming to. If you do not want someone running your life, if you want to rule your own life your own way, which is what every sinful person always wants, then you do not want to find out that there's somebody else who is the boss, do you? That is the last thing you want to find out, that there's somebody else to whom you're answerable. You've spent all these years growing out of your parents, growing out of your grandparents to become an adult who can run your own life your own way. And now when you finally arrive, they tell you, by the way, there's somebody else to whom you owe everything. It's the last thing you want to hear. If it's the last thing you want to hear, then facts and reasons and arguments are not going to be necessarily the key thing in getting you to come to understand that truth. What really requires is God's spirit to be at work in us. It's the Father who reveals to Peter the truth. See, Jesus refuses to do the foolproof test miracle for the Pharisees and the Sadducees because he wants God's spirit, God the Father, to reveal to people that they might put their faith in him. And so we need to be praying more in our evangelism. The chief way of evangelism is on your knees. That's not to say that we don't preach as well. We do. Jesus implicitly is stating over again that he is the Messiah. But he is waiting for that work in the heart of, uh, of the disciples, that work of God in getting them to see that that is what the truth is and to be explicitly confessing that he is the Messiah. Second thing to note is, that, is the pun, the very famous pun about Peter. You are Peter and on this Peter I will build my church. For the word Peter is the Greek word rock. And so, if you like, you are rocky, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, there's been much blood and much ink spilt over this statement. Far too much has been read into the statement, and far too much has been sought to be defended by the statement. I don't want to go into it fully because I want us to talk about Matthew rather than church history and arguments and fights. And really, it is only a small point in, the, in Matthew chapter 16. 
I have to blow it out of its proportion because there has been so many fights over it, but let's try and do it quickly. There, there are two views, and I'm simplifying therefore, there are two views about Peter. There are, are warfare and they use this verse to beat each other over the head with. If you understand the two views, then you'll understand why they're treating the verse the way they are and mistreating it the way they do. The first view is to see that Peter is the authoritative vicar of Christ and that he is the one who is to be the ruler and leader of the church after Christ uh, departs and after Peter, whomever is appointed as the successor of Peter will take on that role and responsibility of being the vicar of Christ. I use the word carefully, vicar of Christ, because it means the one who stands in the place of. It's like the word vicarious suffering. You suffer on behalf of, in the place of, as a substitute for the other person. Well, a vicar is one who stands in the place of somebody else. And so when Peter is the vicar of Christ, then he is the one who is the representative of Christ in this world. And so as Christ is the head of the church, Peter then becomes the head of the church. And as the Vicar of Christ visits Australia shortly, so, the, so Christ is said to visit Australia shortly. Second view is Peter, a view of Peter rather, is that he is one of the twelve apostles, no more, no less. That the apostles were themselves a unique and irrepeatable group of eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And that they are the foundations upon which the church is built because they are the ones who are the original eyewitness, eyewitnesses to the truth of the gospel. And that Peter holds no particular place within them. Now, if you are keen on the first view, this passage, of course, is one of your favourites because Peter seems to be singled out and singled out for particular blessing. You therefore like to see that Peter is the rock upon which the church is to be built. If you're worried by that first view and follow the second view, then this passage becomes, or can become for you, an embarrassment because you don't want Peter to be given such prominence. And therefore you say, well, it's not Peter himself, it's something about Peter. Uh, it's, pro it's his confession of faith, or it's his faith, or it's what he has just said, namely Christ, that is the rock. And you point to the fact that Petros, Peter, is a masculine word, and Petra, the word rock, is neuter, and so therefore, uh, is feminine, and so therefore it's really, you know, not the same thing that is being spoken of, it's, it's just a loose association, and Peter is not the rock, but the faith of Peter, or the confession of Christ, is the rock upon which the church is to be built. Now, I think the second view is wrong. I think that uh, Peter is the rock. I think that's the point of the pun. That Peter is the rock upon which Jesus is to build the church. However, having said that, I think that is a million miles away from proving that Peter alone is the foundation upon which the church is to be built, or that Peter is authoritative, or that Peter is the leader amongst the apostles, or that he is the vicar of Christ, or that his successors will inherit any of his supposed authority. To say that Peter is the rock upon whom Christ builds the church doesn't say any of those other things. And in fact, we find in Ephesians 2.20 that the apostles, all the apostles and the prophets, 
other rocks upon which the, the foundations upon which the church is built. And in Galatians 2, rather than authoritative, we find that Peter got the gospel wrong and had to be corrected by Paul, who wasn't even here on the occasion. But Paul corrected Peter because Peter doesn't get it right, very seriously wrong. Or again, we find in Acts 11 and Acts 15, when the council of Jerusalem is there and all the apostles are gathered together, it's not Peter, but James who is the leader. And Peter has to give account to James and the others as to why he baptised a, a Gentile. He really isn't given that kind of leadership. And in terms of the vicar of Christ, that's a terrible blasphemy because, in fact, the Holy Spirit is the vicar of Christ. Jesus, when he leaves the world, does not leave the world. He says, Lo, I will be with you till the end of the earth. Remember the last verse of Matthew's Gospel? How is Jesus with us? He is with us by his Spirit. He is not with us in a man. He is with us in every man, woman and child who professes Jesus Christ as Lord. We all have his Spirit. You don't need another man. I mean, and that Peter's successors inherit his authority is nowhere to be even implied in any part of the Bible that I know of. In fact, if you remember, the apostles, when they chose the twelfth one to fill in for Judas, were very careful that an apostle had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection, had to be there from the beginning, and there were only two that were available, Justice and Matthias, and Matthias won the lottery. So, really, it's a million miles. The passage is not talking about that kind of thing. So what is it talking about then? Let's get back to the point. What does... Peter. Peter is the foundation because he is the first to receive the revelation of who Jesus is. This is the beginning, the first stone laid in the church that is being built. It is Jesus who builds the church, notice, not Peter, and he is building it on this first stone that has now been established, Peter. And what it is about Peter that establishes him is that he is the one who professes Christ. And so the view that says that it's the confession of Peter is not altogether wrong, but I think it's argued too strongly in an avoidance of trying to get away from Peter's priority. Peter was the first Christian. He is the first to acknowledge Christ. And therefore, he is the foundation stone upon which all the rest follow. Now notice a second controversial and difficult passage that's related to it, namely the keys. What is this keys of which Jesus goes on to speak about? The, the binding and unbinding. Things in heaven and things on earth, the loosing and binding. Now there are difficulties in interpretation in this passage. There are some difficulties. But, while there are some difficulties in this uh, interpretation, uh, there is an excellent commentary in the Expositor's Bible Commentary series, I had trouble spelling this yesterday and I was going to look up how to spell it and I still don't know. Expositor's Bible Commentary, Volume 8, which goes through all the arguments and I really haven't got the time to be able to follow it through and you need to think very long. But if this is a verse that troubles you, Expositor's Volume 8, and the commentary, that part of the commentary is written by Don Carson. I mention it for two reasons. One, the lack of time to take time to do it and go through it properly now. And the other is, so as to remind you about the Katoomba Youth Convention where Don Carson is speaking in January and I just thought I'd be able to get the advertisement in that way. Don't forget to go. He really is worth hearing. He's a great preacher as well as a good writer. However, let me pick up what it's about in general and you can pinpoint me on particulars if you want to later. What is the keys? 
Well, in Luke 11, there's a good parallel that helps us understand. Luke 11, 52, Jesus attacks the scribes and teachers of the law at his time. He says, Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you've hindered those who were entering. It's an image that's a very easy one to perceive. That the knowledge of God opens up for people the kingdom of God and the way to God and indeed if you get the knowledge wrong or if you refuse to pass it on to people it closes off for people the knowledge, the way to God and the kingdom of God. Peter is being given the key, the keys to the kingdom, the keys that will bind people or loose people, that will allow people in or keep people out. That is what is being given and just as the teachers of the law had the keys but refused to give them, Peter and I think the other disciples, I'll argue in a moment, are being given these keys now. And what are the keys? The keys are Christ. He is the chief key. There's going to be more to it in a moment. He's the chief key. That's just what Peter has discovered, that Jesus is the Christ. If you've got that key, your first step on the door on the way in to the kingdom of heaven. Very important. Without that one, you've got big troubles. But with that one, heaven's being opened up for you. But it's more than that. Is it Peter only who has this? No, no. It's all the disciples. They were all called to be fishers for men. They were all told that they were the salt of the earth and the light of the world. They've all been sent in chapter 10 out to preach. And in chapter 28, they're going to be sent out again to preach. Chapter 28, 18 following. No, no. It's all the disciples. But you say, but here, Philip, it's only Peter. Yes, here it is only Peter. Because Peter is the one who is saying, Jesus is the Christ. He's getting the first key right. But look with you, will you, just across to chapter 18 and verse 18. 18, 18. Talking about the church, talking to all the disciples. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The very promise given to Peter is given to all the apostles, all the disciples. It's not an exclusively Peter-only task. It's any of them have it. They have this binding and loosing power. And of course they do, for they are the witnesses of Jesus, the Messiah, who comes to open up heaven for mankind and who comes in judgment to close it off for mankind as well. And as the gospel of Jesus is preached, some people are freed from their sinfulness and brought into the kingdom of heaven. And some people are bound in their sinfulness and kept out forever. It's the very character of gospel preaching. If you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are binding and loosing people by the very activity you're engaged in. And that's what Peter is being given at this moment when he sees Jesus as the Christ. But, notice verse 20, they're told not to use them yet. They're told not to proclaim who Jesus is, to keep it a secret. And why? Well, it's partly because others have to find it by revelation as well. It's partly, though, because they don't understand what it is. Because Peter, as much as any of them, is still getting it wrong. See, immediately after Jesus is identified as the Christ, he starts teaching them that the Christ must suffer. Verse 20, 
one. He hasn't taught them this before, there's been hints before, but not taught it. He began to explain that he's got to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things and be killed the third day rise again. I am the king and I've come to be executed. Here is something which is such a radical idea that they couldn't grasp it. You and I, because we live after the resurrection, we notice the little phrase, and be raised to life, and say, oh, well, that'll be all right in the end. But to them, before the resurrection, to be raised to life just means to go to heaven. So he's saying, I'm going to be killed and go to heaven. So the thing they will hear loud and clear is, I'm going to be killed. And that's unthinkable. My Muslim mates the other day, you see, same thing. I said to them, Jesus died, he was killed. They said, that's impossible. He was a prophet. The Quran says that Jesus is a prophet. Uh, and so Jesus is a prophet. Prophets can't be killed because they're God's messengers. God always protects them. That's part of their, by definition. So the, the, the Muslim, you see, believes Jesus wasn't killed. One, because the Quran says he wasn't. And two, because it's unthinkable for a prophet ever to be killed. Now, of course, within the Bible, prophets are killed all the time. It's one of the characteristics of prophets. They get bumped off and they have a rough time. But within Muslim thinking, it is unthinkable for a prophet to be killed. And this fellow was very interesting in the way he was just... It couldn't be. That's just... It was not on. That's exactly the same with Peter. See, Peter knows that the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he is going to conquer the world in the name of Yahweh. And he is going to establish the world kingdom in Jerusalem. And all the nations will bow down to us Jews. And here is Jesus, and Jesus is the Christ, and I'm his right-hand man. I might be the treasurer, or I might even get to be prime minister in this new kingdom, but I'll be there with the rest of them. So here he is, the Christ, and he's come to conquer the world, and he says, now the first thing we've got to do is go up to Jerusalem so I can get executed. You see why Peter bursts out the way he does? Never! That'll never happen to you. It can't happen to you. It is unthinkable that it should happen to you. And here Jesus hears in the voice of Peter, Satan coming again, like he did in the temptation in the wilderness when Jesus was first identified as the Messiah. And Satan said, do the miracles, make the bread, do anything, but don't go the way of the cross, of course. And so he says, get behind me, Satan. It's incredible if you compare verse 17 and 23, isn't it? 17, what you're saying, Peter, is because the Father in heaven has shown you. Verse 23, what you're saying, Peter, is because Satan is in you. There is the sublime but the ridiculous in six short verses, isn't there? You'll notice also there's another pun comes in. As Peter is the rock upon which the church is to be built in verse 17, 16, 17, so in verse 23 he is the stumbling block who must be taken out of the way. He's a rock in both sense. A rock you can build on or a rock you can trip over. If Jesus is the Son of God, he's got to come by the way of the cross. You see, here is the great problem for them. They've got this concept called Christ, called Messiah. Big C, they know exactly what that is. And Jesus now has been identified as the Christ. But what they think the Christ is, is quite different to what Jesus thinks. Radically different to what Jesus thinks. And so if they went around proclaiming that J equals C, they would actually be misproclaiming him. Because what they mean by C is not what Jesus means by C. What they mean by C is the world ruler. What Jesus means by C is the suffering servant. Radically different. So there's no point going around saying Jesus is Christ if by Christ you mean the wrong thing. They've got the right label, they've just got the wrong product. Well, they've got the right person now, but they've got the wrong actions that he's come to do. And so Jesus won't let them. 
he explains to them, and he's going to continue explaining in the next few chapters, his death. And therefore he calls them again into discipleship. It's interesting that he recalls them. He's called them already to come follow me. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. They'll all come running. He says, okay, now I'm going to tell you what the kingdom's about. It's about getting executed. So maybe you'd like to review your discipleship. I mean, that's fair enough, isn't it? New contract for a new agreement. So if anyone wants to come after me, you've got to deny yourself. Take up your cross, follow me, because coming after me means going the way of the cross. Coming after me means losing your life. You see, you may be following Jesus, the Messiah, because you think you'll be able to ride in conquest to power and glory, but if you're going to follow Jesus, the Messiah, then you're going to ride in shame and disgrace, in ignominy and suffering, because that's the way he comes to power and glory. So unless you're willing to go by the way of the cross, unless you're totally committed to me, there's no way that you should follow me. Now, because what Jesus asks and demands is preposterous unless he is Christ, isn't it? To actually ask people to lay down their life for you is really preposterous unless you're God or something. And so here's what's being asked. And he says, of course, those who do it will save it, whereas those who hang on to their lives now will lose it. The paradox of verse 25 is an interesting one. It's true in lots of things of life, isn't it? If you want to have friends, don't go looking for friendship. Go giving away friendship. If you want love, don't go looking to be loved. Give love away and it comes back to you. The only way you get it is by giving it. It's the same paradox. You hang on to your life now, you're going to lose it. Do you give your life to me? I am the one who gives life because Jesus doesn't come to take life, he comes to give life, to give his own life and through giving his own life, to give life to all of us. And so those who reject the way of the cross are going to reject life itself. The way to life is by death. And Jesus gives reasons then for why they should do it, the reason of saving life in verse 25 and verse 26, because what else have you got in life? What happens if you say, no, I'm going to hang on to my life. I wouldn't want to give my life away to somebody else. I'm going to do my own thing. He says, what have you gained if you gain the whole world at the cost of your soul? It's a good question. Every politician needs to read early of every year. And he might send them a little Christmas card with it on. What do you gain if you gain the whole world at the cost of your soul? You've got nothing, haven't you? What do you give in exchange for your soul? What price do you put on your own head? It's still the challenge for today. What in the world is worth your soul? When you meet your maker, what are you going to say to him and say, well, look, I was really, it was just so important for me to play cricket for New South Wales that I couldn't be bothered finding out about you. It would be very impressive, won't it? I'm sure God will be deeply and profoundly moved. I mean, what is it that is so important that you're going to sacrifice eternity for? There can't be anything. But is this man able to give me eternity? You see, it comes back to who is Jesus, doesn't it? And then he answers the other question as to when you should do it because he says the Son of Man's coming, in fact, is right here. The Son of Man's coming in power and he comes in judgment and you haven't got much time to make up your mind on this issue. There is a deadline. I don't know if you notice the deadline. It's coming up in a couple of weeks, isn't it? There comes a point where judgment comes. Right? And you've just got to be ready for it. Now, you've got an advantage with that judgment. They've told you exactly the dates, haven't they? Well, Jesus says it's very soon. In fact, some of you won't die before it starts. Now, it's a little hard to know that last verse, whether it refers to the transfiguration in the next few verses of chapter 17, or whether it refers to the resurrection, or even, and I think it does, refer to the destruction of the temple. But that's too complicated for me to explain to you now. But within their lifetime, 
the Son of God became the ruler of the nations within their very lifetime. That's what happened, just as Jesus predicted. So we now have the new key. Two keys are given to us, you see, the keys of the kingdom. The first key, Jesus, is the Messiah. That's the first key. And they're now being given the second key, that the Messiah means the suffering crucified one who is going to rise up and bring new life. The king who must die to reign. The king who will reign because he dies. We who live on this side of the resurrection, it's an easy thing to grasp because by his death we know he paid for sin and ransomed captives and defeated evil and opened up the kingdom of heaven, overcame death and all those kinds of things. But for them, well, they're struggling with it. Yet for us it's the same questions that they've got to answer. Who was Jesus? Depending on your answer to that question, you will understand why he's come and what you've got to do about it. Let's pray. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, for your Son and for his victory over death and evil and his opening up the way to you. We do pray, Father, that you help each one of us to rightly perceive who he is. Open our minds and hearts that we may see him for who he is. And Father, give us that integrity that knowing the truth we may live by it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.